0: Amen. You may be seated. Now, over the last two weeks, we've been talking about the circumstances surrounding the birth of Samson. And now when we get to chapter 14, we finally get to see our little boy all grown up. Aren't you so excited? And so here's here's the key is looking back and having heard what the angel, all that the angel of the Lord had said about him that he was going to be one of the judges of Israel. He was going to be a savior to Israel, and he was going to deliver them out of the hands of the Philistines. With all of that in mind, you would think that when we first get a glimpse of him, that he is going to be an incredible demonstration of godliness and righteousness. I mean, stop and think what he had going for him. He, he was somebody who had been, unlike all the other uh, judges of Israel, was set apart even before he was ever born. For the work of God. He was a guy who was raised up with at least God-fearing parents, not perfect, but God fearing. And he also had taken the Nazarite vow, which means that every day, the way even the way that he lived, everything that he did, and that he didn't, reminded him that he was set apart expressly for the work of God and to do the will of God. Now, again, with all of that in mind, and understanding that that Samson, like all the other judges, really serves as a picture or a type of a coming Messiah, the ultimate Messiah that one day would come, we're speaking of Jesus Christ, then again, we're expecting good things. But when we get to chapter 14, we're a little bit disappointed, maybe greatly disappointed, because instead of really looking like the Savior that he was sent to emulate, he looks more like the sinful people he was sent to save. What I want to say this morning is this, as we begin, and here's kind of one of the the big idea really today is is that you and I, every born-again believer, if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, that means if you're the real deal, if you've truly been saved, if you've repented of your sins, placed your faith in him, and demonstrated true fruit which is consistent with salvation. If you have the Holy Spirit that's dwelling and living within you, you and I are in a perpetual state of danger of living lives that look far more like the sinful world in which God has saved us than 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 the holy Christ Jesus who God has now saved us to emulate. See, when God saves us, he, doesn't, he, he always changes everyone that he saves, but you and I are in a constant state of struggle. Anybody? All right, constant state of struggle. God, I, I know what you've done in me. I know the power of God that dwells within me through the power of the Holy Spirit. But at any moment, any time, you and I sometimes think like, act like, and speak like that lost world that God first originally saved us out of. So what I want to do is I want to show you two specific dangers concerning that thing. That, that very idea, that there are two specific dangers that we see in the text of Scripture that would lead us or, or, or would demonstrate that we're looking more like the world than we are our Savior. What is that? Well, two things. First of all, we are in danger when we continue to pursue the desires of the flesh while ignoring the warnings of those around us. Let me read it to you one more time. We're in danger when we continue to pursue the desires of the flesh while ignoring the warnings of those around us. Now, take a look, if you will, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and he told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Now let's make sure we know exactly what's going on here. All right. So our little boy has grown up, but he hasn't gone out. Okay, maybe you have this. I don't know. Uh, he's grown up, but he hasn't left the house yet. And the reason for, the, by the way, I don't want to cause any problem within the home, by the way. I'm just telling you what happens here. He's grown up. He hasn't gone out. And for whatever reason, he still lives with mom and dad at home at his hometown in Zora. But for some reason, he hasn't been able to find that special someone, that person that he really wants to settle down with, that person that he wants to, to, to have little baby Samson's with, all right? But it doesn't mean that he doesn't have his eye out for that special someone. He's always looking. In fact, here in the text, we find out that he goes to a town, which is approximately four miles away east of, of Zorah, uh, called Timnah. And he goes there, and the Bible doesn't tell us why he goes, we don't know if it's business. We don't know if it's pleasure. But I got a I hanker and I know what it is. I think, I think he's looking in his little pond of Zora. He doesn't see any women that he really catches his eye. And he's heard about the babes over in Timnah, right? And so he's thinking, man, I've heard about those girls over there. I'm going to wander on over just a little bit and see what Timnah has to offer. Well, while he's over there, of course, there is a little girl that catches his eye. Now, what I want you to understand, and I think this is what the author is doing in the text, He is this man who has been set apart by God, okay, for God's purposes, is now going to go to a place that is godless to be able to meet his own physical needs passions. Do you understand that? Here's a man that's been set apart by God to do the will of God, to, to demonstrate the image of, of, of the Savior, what the ultimate Savior will be like, and here he has fleshly desires, and he goes to try to have those met in Timnah, a place that is completely godless. It's a place that is not about God, but is about their many gods. It's it's underneath a completely different rule. They want nothing to do with God, but yet it's here that he goes to be able to meet a wife. And as soon as he finds this little girl, he runs back home and he comes back to his parents. And he very clearly, and the reason he's coming back is because at that time, the, the parents were still arranging marriages. And so he needs them to arrange it. And he's basically like, hey, man, I found one. I found the one that I want. This is the one that I want, mom and Dad. He sounds a little bit, to be honest with you, kind of like that spoiled kid that you hear every once in a while, like in the children's aisle, and maybe it's yours, I don't know. But the little child sits there and goes, I want that one, right? And, uh, and, and he points, and, and he, really what he wants is he wants this girl. And what he actually says here, he says, now get her for me as my wife. And what we see here is, is he really kind of depicts Uh, once again, the sinful world that he was sent to save more than the Savior that he was meant to emulate. And what we find here is he's really demonstrating he's a perfect picture through his actions and through his speech of the spiritual condition of the people during this time. The people during this time are holy and completely fleshly. They don't make their decisions based on what God would have them to do or who God is or even the will of God for their own lives. They're dictated and they live their lives simply upon fleshly impulse. Now, the way that we see this played out is do you notice his parents are going to object to him. They're going to object to him. They're going to say, hey, listen, I don't know why you want to date this girl, and they're going to object. We're going to look at the the objection in a minute, but after they object, notice how he responds to his parents at the end of verse 3. He says, get her for me, for she, now no, is right in my own eyes. If you've been with us and familiar with the book of Judges, you know in your own eyes is a bad thing. Because what we found is when we looked at 17, verse 6, when the author's trying to let us know how sinful people were and the sinful life that they were living apart from God, he actually says everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So when sinful people do what's right in their own eyes, guess what? You know that they're doing, they're doing once again what is wicked in the eyes of God. So here's Samson. Is supposed to be savior of the people. And he's been set apart for a specific mission of God, but he doesn't care about God at the moment. He doesn't care about God. He He doesn't seek God for his will. He doesn't seek the scriptures. All he's doing is living in the flesh. What makes it even worse than that is the fact that not only does he live in the flesh, but he won't listen to those that God has placed inside of his life to begin to steer him away from that flesh and to steer him back to God. Now, let, let me go back just for a moment and say this. How many of us from day to day are found living in the flesh rather than in the spirit? Because before we sit there and go boo on Samson, stop and think for a moment, many of us live the same way. There are some of us who have made decisions all week long about where we should go, what we should do, uh, 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 um, decisions that we have to make about our children, decisions that we have to make about our finances, all of these things we have been making. And the truth of the matter is many of us are no different than the practice of Samson. The truth is many of us have not gone and cried out to God or called out to God in prayer and said, God, what would you have me do? Where would you have me go? What would you have us do with our children? Instead, most of us are just living according to our fleshly impulse. If we think it looks good, we do it. If it doesn't look good, then we don't do it. So many of us are just like him. But what was even worse for Samson is that there were people around him that God had placed in his life to direct him and to understand that, "Brody, you're headed in the wrong direction. His parents come up to him and say, son, this is not the will of God for your life. This is not what you ought to be doing. And he completely ignores them. They say, don't do it. But yet, even though he's been warned, he continues to pursue and to live and to pursue the flesh. Now, notice this. He is a perfect example of Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 15. Note this. The Bible says there, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Did you note that? right in his own eyes. The second part says, but a wise man listens to advice. Perfect example of who he is. Samson is a fool. He is a man who's not living according to the will of God. He's living according to what his flesh wants, and he's unwilling to listen to those who are trying to speak truth into his life. He's doing his own thing. Let me ask you a question. Are you a fool? Are you a fool? Now listen, just so you know, we are not really a, a, a if, if you're new to Celebration, we're not really a feel-good, fluffy church. Just, just to let you know, they don't normally ask, are you a fool? But let me ask you, are you a fool? Are you living as a fool? Are you, as a, as a blood-washed, born-again believer, professing believer, who has been given the scriptures, who have been given the word of God and the Holy Spirit inside of you, are you making decisions based on the faith or, bl- or based on your flesh? the Bible says if you're just sitting there and you're going about this whole business when God has given us his word and and you're not even dictating and trying to figure out what the will of God is for your life, you're just living in the flesh, he says, you're a fool. You're even more of a fool, he says, is if you're ignoring those around you who are trying to teach the word of God, trying to tell you about who God ultimately is. And so what we find here, here, here is this. He says, we're a fool. Now, some people would sit back and say, Mike, you need to be really careful with that fool word uh, because the Bible says in Matthew chapter 22, he says, let no one call each other a fool because if you do, you yourself are in, are in danger of hell. Well, thank you very much, Bible scholar. Uh, uh, thank you very much for that. I understand that. But understand something. It's much worse than me calling you a fool. God is calling you a fool. When you live and continue to pursue the flesh, and ignore all the warnings that God has ultimately giving you. Let me talk with our young people just for a moment. Since this is really in a context, as parents talking with a son, and it's the son who keeps doing this. Let me, let me share something with, with, with young people. Um, there is nobody, and parents, you need to take your kids aside, and this is what you need to do. I've done this. You need to do the same exact thing. Uh, you need to take them aside and you need to tell them. Now, this is not during bad times when everything's falling apart and you guys are yelling at each other. It's during the best times. I mean, it's like during Disney World times, right? I mean, everything is good. Everybody's happy. That's not really our Disney World trips. But anyway, you understand it. At a really good time, you set them aside and here's what you tell them. You tell them, nobody, nobody in this world apart from Christ loves you more than we do. Nobody loves you more than we do. Nobody cares for you. Nobody mourns for you. Nobody cries for you. Nobody wants more for you or better for you than us. Not your buddy down the street, little Johnny, not your little girlfriend, not your boyfriend, not, not, not your teachers, not the rock musicians or whoever it is, that, the instrumentals that you love to listen to. None of them, they don't even know who you are. They just love it that you buy their, their, their music. The, the bottom line is nobody loves you more than we do. And young people, you need to understand that. So when you are living your life and you're making decisions of where to go to school or what to do or how to live your life or what to buy or, or, or even relationships and your parents are sitting there and they're waving their arms right this and they're saying, you're going in the wrong direction. You're going in the wrong direction. You are fool not to listen to those godly parents and what it is that they are saying because they love you more than anyone else. And this is what the text would say, but it's certainly not just parents. It's certainly as adult that this applies to. You know, I I I can't, I can't tell you how many times as a pastor, one of the things that I'll do is people will come in and they'll want to know uh, maybe, hopefully, what the Word of God says. But this is, this is how I know that I'm in trouble. When somebody comes in and they say, hey, listen, I, I w- I'd like to meet up with you. I'd like to make an appointment because I'd like to get your opinion on something. The moment that they ask me what my opinion is, I'm like, it's not going to do any good what I say to this person. Because no matter what I say, no matter how steeped in the Word of God it is, no matter how clear it is. Now, guys, I'm talking about Clarity. I'm not talking about those issues that are kind of iffy and you're asking a real hard theological question. I'm like, well, I think the Bible kind of says this. I'm talking about come in, hey, you know, I'm just wondering, is it wrong to kill somebody? Well, let me show you what the Bible says. You're not supposed to kill right there in the black and white. I mean, it's black and white. And they will literally turn to you and go, okay, you know, I had a feeling that that's what you're going to say. That's giving me a lot to think about and pray about. No, not think about and pray about. It's the word of God. You're, you're going in the wrong direction. You're going the wrong way with your life. You're not, you're not listening to the word of God. God has sent these people in your life every Sunday preaching the word of God. Pastors, friends, coworkers, whoever it is who have surrounded you to speak truth in your life when you are seeking out a fleshly life and they're warning you to turn. And the Bible says if you don't, you're a fool. Maybe even worse than a fool, you're just like a lost world and not like the Christ who saved you. Second thing we want to see, look at that, we're halfway done. It's amazing how quick this is going. Number two, we, not for, the first thing that we see in the word of God is this, that we are in danger when we continue to pursue the desires of the flesh while ignoring the warnings of those around us. Number two, and it will make the second one more, makes more sense. We are in danger when we seek to force our standards on others rather than hold them to the standards of God. All right. My wording is a little bit different than here, but let me re- read it again. We are in danger when we seek to force our standards on others rather than hold them to the standards of God. Now, understand, we, we see that Samson's parents disagree with this move. You see that? Okay. They disagree with it. Let's look at their objection for a moment in verse three. Look at verse three. He says, but his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the, from the circumcised Philistines? Now, why are the parents so objecting to their children? I mean, it's true that uh, many times as parents, we disagree with the choices of our kids. Would you agree? Yes, we do. And so why is it that they are so, so, so objective to the decision that he's making in this girl that he wants to marry? Well, remember their hopes and the promises that they had received. Remember, it seems like only yesterday that the angel of the Lord had appeared to them and told them the good news that they're going to have a baby when they didn't even think they could have one. She believed that she was completely barren, incapable of having children. And the angel shows up and says, not only are you going to have a child, but that child is going to be a savior and a judge of Israel. This is amazing news. And what he's going to do is he's going to rescue and fight on Israel's behalf against the Philistines to deliver you. So they're waiting for him as a parent. If you would hear that, what are you expecting? You're expecting the young man to grow up and crack some Philistine heads, right? That's what you're looking for. But instead of cracking Philistine heads, he's marrying their daughter. So a Philistine daughter. And so they don't know what to do with this. They're thinking to themselves, how in the world can this be positive? This is not the way that we raised our little boy. He's making decisions completely and consistently with the way that we've raised him. So they begin to reason with him. So here's the reasoning. The reasoning is, hey, listen, There's surely there's got to be another girl out there somewhere for you. Right, certainly with all the girls in Israel, there's got to be some cute little girl you can settle down with. What about one of our extended family members? What about Betsy? All right, she's your third cousin twi- twice removed. I don't know what the twice removed thing it means, but anyway, you could share it with me. Third cousin twice removed. She's cute. Yeah, she's got a little bit of a hump and a little bit of a limp, but she would make a far greater wife than any Philistine woman could ever do it. Then they look at him and they're like, Samson, really? A Philistine? You're better than that man come on right you can almost hear this conversation going on and and what's interesting and amazing to me about the word of god is how applicable it is for us today it's 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 crazy how you can read a story that occurred three thousand years ago and it sounds as though it sounds like what's going on in many of our own homes isn't it i mean isn't it consistent oftentimes that that again that parents sometimes are not real thrilled by the young man or the young woman that that their children being home to meet mom and dad would would you agree with that, some of you can't raise your hands right now, all right, because uh, that little boy is with you. Um, so can't say too much. You're just, th- this is, is letting me know everything. Um, but the idea is they disagree. But why do they disagree with them? Well, it could be for a lot of different things. Uh, they could they could disagree because, you know, the father looks at this this little daughter, this little precious daughter of his, and sees this little scumbag boy wanting to marry her, and and tells him, says, man, you don't have enough education, you don't have enough money, you don't have the kind of job that's really to going to take care of my girl the way they, they are. The, the, the mom, you know, who's super territorial anyway, and you're probably not one of these crazy women, uh, but uh, you're one of those that are like, no girl's good enough for my boy, no girl at all. They're not going to care for him. They're not going to love him. I still iron his clothes. He's 32 years old. If she doesn't iron his clothes, she's not good enough for my boy. So there's all different types of reasons. I mean, and people love to be able to find them. Would you agree? Now, now, one of the craziest examples that I've ever heard of this, and this was actually happened to me at my first church. There was a girl, young girl, very godly young man that she had met. They had gotten engaged, and she came in tears, and she said, Brother, my parents just don't agree with this marriage. So, Well, that's a big deal that they don't agree with this marriage. What, what, what's going on? What, what do they have against you? You want to honor your father and mother. but what's going on here? And she said, Well, she says, My, my dad says that, that my, my husband or my fiancé has bad teeth. Bad, bad teeth? Yeah, bad teeth. And so I'm thinking, theologically, where is that? Is there something about a tooth? You know? And I'm thinking, thinking through this, and she goes, yeah. She goes, my dad, just his, his belief in growing up was, was, was simply this, is that if somebody had bad teeth, he goes, it showed something worse about their character, and it showed that they weren't really fitting people. Okay, it made me take a second look, first of all, at the young man's teeth, and they were a little bit jacked up, okay? I'm just going to let you know they were a little bit jacked up. But they were nothing, listen, they were nothing compared to the jacked up theology of this man and the standards of this man. The last thing I really care about is the guy's condition of the teeth as, uh, as, as a parent. So we had a very specific reason why he thought this shouldn't work, but what we find is Samson's parents had a very specific reason as well of why they disapproved of this union. And we find it, look at the end of verse 3. Listen to their thinking. He says that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines. Key word there is uncircumcised. Circumcision in the Old Testament is really, a, really an outward sign of an inward reality. It demonstrated that somebody was a part of the covenant family. It means that, that, that if, if you are either circumcised or a part of the circumcision, it means that you were in faith with the one true God. If you were uncircumcised or, or with the uncircumcised or uncircumcision, if you were of them, then you didn't believe in God. So you note know what's happening here. The standards that the parents are applying to their kids are not their own individual uh, um, standard, but rather the standard of God. They're not so much concerned here with, with the ethnicity, the, 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 the economy, or anything physical. What are they concerned for? It's a spiritual issue for them. They understand that this young girl is outside the covenant family. She's an unbeliever. And the reason that they're so concerned about it, and I love this as a parent, they're concerned where God is concerned. And God had specifically commanded that they should not marry outside of the faith. We see this in Exodus chapter 34. In Exodus chapter 34, we read, and God basically just said, hey, listen, that you're not to enter into a close covenant relationship with anybody outside of the covenant family, period, period. And he even gave the reasons. In Exodus chapter 34 and verses 15 through 16, listen to this carefully, and then I'm going to take a moment to unpack it. He says, Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods in in, in sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after the gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. God's command was to not enter into any covenant relationship with an unbeliever which probably certainly included all different types of relationships, but I think we could say it specifically referred to what? To marriage. Now, the question is why? Because when you do do enter into a covenant relationship with an unbeliever, there will be a continual pressure within the relationship to push God to the side. Always pushing God to the side. Let, Let me explain this a Christian. Maybe you're here and you're like, I really don't know what a Christian is. It seems like everybody's a Christian. A Christian, in the way that I define it, is a Christian is a person who is bananas about Jesus. He's bananas about Jesus. He's nuts about him. You say, all oh, those kooky Christians? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I'm talking about. In other words, his whole world, Christ is not a part of his life. A true believer, Christ is his life. Everything revolves around Christ, his will, his purposes, his glory. Everything revolves around it. We find out that that, that God is the purpose. He's our pursuit. He is our passion. He's not pushed over in the peripheral. He is the main aspect of the text of our lives. And so what happens here is when we marry somebody else, Paul says we become unequally yoked with them. That is that we don't have anything in common with the person that we're wetting ourselves in. We're going with two different directions. This is how he says it. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord with Christ with, uh, with, with Belial? And he says, Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And the answer to all those questions is what? None. They don't have anything together, nothing in common. Now catch this. When you're entering into a covenant relationship with somebody, you're agreeing on something. And the more that you agree on it and the more that you have in common, the more intimate you are going to be in that relationship. So God says, why in the world would you make a covenant intimate relationship with somebody that you don't have anything in common with? He says, if God is at the center of all your life, is he at the center of all you do, if he's leading you and he's ultimately guiding you to be able to live for him, and you meet somebody who doesn't know God if he met him in a broom closet, he says, you come face to face to them. What do you have in common? Nothing. But because you're entering the relationship, you want to have intimacy with that person. The only way to have the intimacy of that person is for you to push God out of the picture to the margins of your life the footnotes of the book of your life and then what ultimately happens is you embrace the idols of the one that you're entering into this is why he says don't be unequally yoked tim keller says that you are in intimate he says you are in an intimate relationship with someone who does not understand what what should be the very mainspring of and the motivation for in absolutely everything you do it's interesting to me and, and i think Many of us, especially the Ezekiel or excuse me, the Exodus passage, how historically in the South, how how horrifically we've interpreted that passage, and so many people take that passage and see, say, the Bible says that you can't you can't marry somebody that is of a different color than than, than you. That this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Now this may you may never come back after what I'm about to say, but I'm just trying to let you know because I know it's against your your grandpappy, and all due respect to grandpappy, he got it completely wrong here. I don't think God gives two cents for how or what color an individual is and if two different colored people end up getting married. I don't believe he cares anything about that. It's kind of like like when, when David says, he says, man looks on the outward appearance of man, but God looks at the what? The heart. So what God's standards are not what somebody looks like outwardly, but what they ultimately look like inwardly. So just to make this sure, you see, so many people are so co- co- confused with this outwardly idea that they are more, listen, they are more offended of the fact that two people with two different colors would ultimately get married, but the fact that a and believer and unbeliever would get married, that doesn't seem to disturb them at all. That's a huge issue because God is concerned about this closeness and this intimacy. Now, here's the idea. This message is not about being unequally yoked, but take it for what it's worth, okay? What it's really about is, and this is what I love, it's about the fact that these parents, their standards for their kids were not their own standards, but rather the standards of the God that they serve. And so, of course, we know, like all parents, it was nothing less, it was nothing more. You may, you know, as parents, we have hopes and we have dreams and we have opinions and tastes and desires and concerns for our kids. But the truth of the matter is what is important is God's desires and God's concerns for our children. What we see is we see some parents that, that, is, is, that is sitting there and they're objecting because what the child is doing is inconsistent with the will of God for his life. Now, let me just say a couple of things. Our role as a parent is to set parameters for our, for our children set on God's will for their life, not our own desire for them. Our job is to stand up and to speak up when we see our children pursuing the, the things of the flesh rather than the things of God and remind them of God's will. And this never stops. How many parents will sit back and they'll say, Mike, I have a daughter and she's an adult or I have a son and he's an adult and, and they talk, but I, I don't really say anything because I don't want to mess up the relationship which we have. This child of theirs, of Samson, they were grown up. Your job is to always speak truth in your child. It's up to them whether they ultimately obey or not. But let me tell you this, if you see your child, no matter how old they are, if they're 65 years old and you see them going, they're about to walk off a cliff, you get before them and you do everything you can to get their attention. If they abandon you because you're trying to lead them back to faith in God, then so be it. It's better than for them to walk off the cliff and perish. And so what we find here is this, listen, this is what we have to be careful of careful with, and I think this is so common, is not to let our fleshly desires for our children to be what we guide them toward. Now, you may not understand that, but let me, let me put it this way. Maybe this will make sense. seems like all of our parent, you know, parents, when you get that little kid, that little son, you want to go out and you buy him a little ball mitt and a ball and a baseball, and you're so excited until you pitch it to him, and he can't swing a baseball, and he can't throw a baseball, and he can't do any of these things. But what we do is many times in our lives, we begin to think about what we want for our kids. And many times, it looks like this. We want them to be valedictorian. We want to be them captain on the sports team. We want to be the best of the best. We want them to be a leader in school, We want them, and you just keep listing all of these things. We want them to grow up and be happy. We want them to have a good job. We want them to have a good education. We want them to make lots of money. We want them to be very secure. And if you stop and think about it just for a moment, you take the majority of those things, and if you were to par them out, very little of those things has anything to do with the will of God for their life. But yet it's the standard that we're setting for the children. Now, I'm not at all, at all, in any way, shape, or form, saying that we are not to be able to require something of our children or encouraging our children or specifically to say, hey, listen, do you all for the glory of God? But what I am saying is that we could set a standard for our children that is completely inconsistent with what the standard of God himself has set for them. Instead of talking about being great at ball and great at school and great at that, where is the, hey, listen, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. God wants to use you for his glory, do all for his glory. And so what ultimately happens in our life, I see parents that seem to be far more concerned about the standards that they're setting for their, for their children than for God's standard for their children. And it's just not ultimately a place we want to be because here's what can ultimately happen. The bad part is your child is probably always going to be frustrated because nobody can meet all of those expectations. And they're going to feel like they failed before you. But what's what's even worse is this, not their failure, but if they succeed. If they succeed in everything that you have planned for them and they're the best at everything that they ultimately do, they're going to end up being shipwrecked because one day they're going to accomplish it all and realize that there's nothing to it, no hope, no joy, no future. So what is it that we're called to do? I think here what we're called to do is simply this, is for us, whether it be for our own family or for each other, that we don't sit back and say, here's the standards that I expect you to be able to meet. This is what I want you to be able to meet. And that happens, it happens a lot for pastors. I'm constantly failing people, but not primarily because of what the word of God requires of me, but because of the standards that somebody has set for me. It's the same thing for you. In spouses and in the husband, there's all kinds of standards that you're setting. And you say, you've got to be able to meet this standard in order for you to be able to, for me to be able to be happy for you. And that's not the way that we're supposed to be doing it. Our standard for each other is what the Word of God has set, the will of God for each other's life. Now, what do we do with all of this? I say two things. I say that there's no doubt in my mind that there are people who are here that are directly on the way, and they are making decisions apart from the will of God, apart from the clear teaching of the Word of God. And there are even some here. You've come week after week after week, and here's a preacher who's been standing up in front of you trying to get your attention to let you know that the road that you are on right now is going to lead to destruction and eternal fire. Sounds rough and it is rough, but do not ignore those that God has placed inside of your life to try to get your attention to repent and to be able to turn from that. There's some of us that need to sit there and again, but but here's what I want to say to those that are calling. Those that we're calling right now to repentance and on that track, and here we are warning you, what we want you to know is we're not calling you to live up to our standard. I know what that's like, I know what it's like to have been brought up in some churches, and they're wonderful churches, but there was an air of you had to look a certain way, you had to act a certain way, you had to have a certain type of haircut, you had to have a certain type of clothes. We're not asking you to come and join any of that. We don't want to force any of that, on you? I don't want you to have to dress like me, for sure, all right? We don't want to do that to anybody. But what we do want you to do is we want you to come and live according to the standard of God. Here's the difficulty. What's the standard of God? It's even higher than my standard. It's perfection. It's perfection. God says, you have to be perfect to have a right relationship with me. But here's the good news. He knows you can't make it. He knows you can't do it. He knows that you can't be it. You can't live up to that standard. No one could except for one, and his name was Jesus Christ. And God sent his son, who was the true judge. This one falls so short, but the true judge who's ultimately going to come was tempted in every way, yet sinned not. And in sinning not, what he allowed to do is he died on a cross for you and for me so that the wrath of our sin that God had for our, the righteous wrath would pour out on him and not on you and I. You say, how do I get in on that? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Recognize yourself to be a sinner. Recognize. And so here's what's amazing with grace. He is a God that will hold you accountable for sin but he made the payment for you. And he's a gracious, loving God. Every day of your life, even after you're born again, you will fall and you will stumble and you will miss the ultimate standard of God. But Jesus Christ met it for you. And when you fail, the grace and the mercy of God will be there every minute of every day for the rest of your life. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you, we thank you. And God, I thank you for the text of scripture that we have this morning. I hope that it was in some ways a challenge for us of understanding what you have for us is that, God, we are truly a fool and we are truly more like the world than the Savior when, when we're just pursuing the things of the flesh. When we're not concerned with what your will is for us. God, let's not live that way, but let's live submitted to your will and to submit it to your word. And God, let us not try to hold some standard above each other and hold each other to a standard, anything that's other than what you are requiring of us. God, I got a feeling that there might be some young people here that need to truly repent and thank God for their parents and thank God for those who are speaking truth and not rebel against it and fight against it. There's some parents who need to repent, maybe even in this place today, that sit there and say the truth of the matter is I've had high standard for my kids, but they've truly not been steeped within the word of God. They've been more mine than they've been yours. And there are some that just need to come and say, I need to trust Christ as Savior. I need to repent. I need to believe in him and believe on him. And God will save you. Let's pray. Jesus, I just pray that you'd move, that you'd work that you'd lead, that nothing else, that we'd respond to the truth of your word today. Whatever that looks like, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Let's stand. And I'll be down here. If you want to come and pray or talk, just let's respond.